Amen. Thanks a lot. Guys, thanks for coming today. <clears throat> and again, thanks for having me. It's really fun being back in what used to be where the Big, big Wesley was. This was what we call Big Wesley when they uh, built this chapel, my intern year. So pretty, pretty cool. And um, Clay asked me to come and talk on the issue or the subject about Calvinism and Arminianism and what do we do with all that. Apparently, the year or two years after my intern year, there was a wave of people that came through that interned, and they started reading John Piper, and they started getting all excited, and then they left the Wesley Foundation because they fell in love with Reformed theology and, and thought that was the way to go. And so <clears throat> the question that I guess Clay wanted me to deal with, share with you guys, is what's, what's going on with that? Like, what, what, how, do, how do we think as Christians? Wesley has always, do I, what, do I need to do anything? Sure you're Am I recording? Yeah. We not, we're good? Okay. So, Wesley Foundation when I, uh, has always been Christian first, Methodist second, which is the order it should go in. And the, the Christian church in general is, consists of people across theological spectrums on a number of issues. One of those issues being Calvinism, Reformed theology. And so it's something that, rather than coming today and, and speaking about, you know, why you should reject it or why you should embrace it or any of that stuff. I don't know anybody's backgrounds. I don't know if people grew up Baptist, Presbyterian, whatever. But this is the Wesley Foundation. So what I want to do is share about what is Calvinism and broader, what is Reformed theology, and then what are the alternatives to it? What do... Uh, what does the Methodist Church believe? What does Wesleyan theology believe? What does other types of non-Calvinist theology? So it's important to know at the front, anytime you get into issues like this, it's an in-house debate. In other words, you're going to have good, faithful, spirit-filled, Bible-believing Christians just down the road at wherever, Baptist student ministry or Presbyterian or whatever, and they're going to disagree on this. And it's okay. One of the things that I really liked, after I left Wesley, I went up to Boston. I went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And Gordon-Conwell was founded by Billy Graham and a few other guys back in the 60s to be an evangelical seminary, broadly evangelical. So because of that, we were interdenominational. So unlike an Asbury or Candler or Duke or uh, one of the other Methodist or Wesleyan seminaries, Gordon-Conwell had staff and faculty that were evangelical, Bible-believing, faithful Orthodox Christians from a variety of backgrounds. The beauty in that was I had theology professors who were strong Calvinists. I had theology professors who were Wesleyan, who were Arminian. Uh, I had some who were Episcopalian, Lutheran. We, we got to experience the breadth of evangelical theology. And it was a strength because what it helped me do is it helped me crystallize and clarify where I stood at the end after finishing seminary and it did so in a way that challenged me along the way. So when I was presented with Calvinist theology, it wasn't from a Methodist who was trying to tell me what Calvinists believe. It was from a Calvinist who believed it. And that's one of the strengths that I see. Those of you that are going into seminary or uh, higher education after you leave here, I would encourage you to consider and think about an, an interdenominational seminary where you're going to get something from people who may disagree with you. Still within the span of evangelicalism, still within, you know, Bible-believing Christianity, but where they can think differently on this issue. I want to read a quote from Roger Olson. He's a Baptist theology professor, and um, he says, 
one, of, one reason many young people, and perhaps others, embrace the new Calvinism is because they're convinced it's the only biblically and intellectually serious theology available. It is all too true, as some Calvinists have argued, that many American evangelical churches are almost totally devoid of theology. Curious young people who are convinced there must be something more to their faith than the folk religion that they have been given encounter Calvinism for the first time, usually under the name Reformed Theology. They're often impressed and sometimes swept away with it. In my experience, this is partly under the influence of extremely passionate sermons delivered by scholarly popularizers of Calvinism who preach at enormous youth conferences, the sermons being podcast for re-listening, as if their theology is the only one that truly honors God. I've found that many of the new Calvinists simply are not aware that there are any viable alternatives to their newfound doctrinal faith. Through reading books by their favorite pastors and teachers, many of them are convinced that all alternatives, and especially the dreaded Arminianism, are man-centered, biblically unsupported, and intellectually weak. This is Roger Olson's book called Against Calvinism that he wrote in combination with Michael Horton, who wrote For Calvinism. They joint published those as a debate. And Olson describes in this quote exactly what happened to a number of my friends here at Wesley. We were back in the passion, road to one day, Louis Giglio, big conference era when all of that stuff was new and exciting. So people would go and they'd hear amazing worship and they'd listen to Louis give an awesome message and he'd bring in somebody like a John Piper who would be passionate, would talk about God's glory, would light a fire under people for missions and evangelism and all this awesome stuff. And in that message would clearly imply or sometimes flat out say that this theology, Reformed theology, Calvinist theology, is the only true theology that honors God. And everything else is man-centered or man-made or, or just cobbled together by people. And you hear that a lot. You hear it from people like D.A. Carson. You hear it from people like Mark Driscoll, although not much anymore since his uh, little downfall. You hear it from the Gospel Coalition, uh, Together for the Gospel, Tim Keller, although Tim Keller is really good at being balanced in it. Um, you hear it from a lot of popular writers and theologians and preachers. You listen to hip-hop. If you listen to Lecrae, Christian hip-hop, he's straight Calvinism. Lecrae, Flame, Shylin, uh, a lot of the guys that are really making waves in, in, in the rap music game right now that are Christians are fed on. And they'll, they'll rhyme about their being brought up in folk, folk religion, you know, typical gospel services, the prosperity gospel, all kinds of stuff that they just grew up with. And then they get and they grow up and they learn real theology. And it's always like John MacArthur or Jim Boyce or any of these people that you just read commentaries and you think, oh, that's how you do real theology. And those voices are almost always from a Calvinist or Reformed perspective. A lot of it is because Methodist, Arminian, non-Calvinists have not done a good job in actually doing theology. However, that hasn't always been the case. A guy named Austin Fisher wrote a book called Young, Restless, and No Longer Reformed. There was a movement, it was about six or seven years ago, uh, I think, Rolling, no, not Rolling Stone, Time Magazine did a cover story on the most influential ideas of the 21st century, and uh, one of them was the, the resurgence of Calvinism. And, they did, and, and it was coined, the movement was coined the Young, Restless, Reformed Generation. 
And they're talking about my generation and the people that came right after me at Wesley, how they, would, they were young and they were restless and they were tired of just the pablum theology that they'd grown up with. And then they discovered Calvinism and they were swept up in it and caught up and started getting into uh, reading you know, Calvin and Luther and Augustine and, and just really diving into it. <clears throat> they were called the Young, Restless, and Reformed. And Austin Fisher was one of these young pastors, got caught up in it, uh, just completely bought into it, loved it, was just blown away by it, and then a few years later left the, uh, changed his view, left Calvinism, abandoned it. And he, so he writes this book, Young, West, Restless, and No Longer Reformed, that chronicles his journey. What made him, this theology that he once so fervently embraced and preached, what made him finally leave it in favor of what he would call um, I don't even remember what he called it, but just a non-Calvinist approach to reading scripture and teaching. <clears throat> and one of the things he said in the book was, he said, people don't choose Calvinism or free will theism because one side has clearly proven itself right, but because they find one set of mysteries easier to live with than the other. Despite what you'll hear from people that are Calvinist, people that are Arminian, people that are something else, this is a debate that's gone back at least to the first 500 years of the church. Like 400 AD, give or take. The time of Augustine and Pelagius was about the time that this came on the scene. So Christians, faithful Christians, have been divided on this issue of what does God's sovereignty mean? How does his sovereignty work out? What is predestination? What is election? Free will? The atonement? All of those things, they've been debated and explored by Christians, faithful Christians, for... 1,600 years. So it's not a debate that anybody's going to just come and, and, well, well, that settles it anytime soon. And it's important to realize that because, one, it prevents spiritual pride. There's nothing more annoying and spiritually toxic than someone who is convinced that everything that they say theologically is what God thinks, and everything that you say theologically is man-made. Or, or human creation, or sub-biblical, or any of these other passive-aggressive insults that people do. It's, it's just, it's so, it's nauseating. And we want to avoid that, no matter what your theology is, you want to avoid that. One of the ways to do that is to recognize that brilliant, godly, spirit-filled Christians have disagreed on this issue for the entire history of the church, pretty much. So that should give us some, some interpretive humility. However, it doesn't mean that it's, oh, well, we just don't need to worry about it anymore because nobody can solve it. No. What it is, it cuts at the heart of who God is and who we are and his view of us and his relationship with us. And because of that, it's important for us to push and explore and learn and study this issue and allow ourselves to be convinced by the Holy Spirit and by truth. And that may end up in a different place than somebody else, but all we're responsible for is ourselves. And doing what we can with the talents and the abilities and the minds that God's given us. So if you realize this, then you can realize, oh, no, it's not that people that don't believe Calvinism don't believe it because they don't love Jesus or they don't have a high view of scripture or they don't believe in God's sovereignty or anything else you may hear on a popular Calvinist podcast or in books or things. It's not true. That's just simply not true. That is a mark of someone who's either dishonest or they're ignorant. They don't know any better. They've never encountered robust non-Calvinist theology or they're being intellectually dishonest in order to try to persuade or win somebody over. But the honest thinker will admit what Fisher admits right there. 
<clears throat> John Wesley, this is nothing new. John Wesley's best, one of his best friends was George Whitfield, and they preached all over England and Whitfield, all over the Americas. And, and the, the, the revivals that God stirred through them literally changed the course of, course of Christian history forever. Whitfield was a strong Calvinist, Calvinist Methodist. Those still exist today. They're a tiny minority, but they still exist. <clears throat> Wesley was not. He was Arminian. He did not believe in the doctrines of Calvinism as they were put. And they had to go their separate ways in ministry as a result. They couldn't effectively minister together side by side because they were preaching fairly different things when it came to how you're saved and salvation and God's knowledge and all of that. But they remained lifelong friends. Wesley gave the eulogy at Whitfield's funeral, and, and their relationship is a, a great example for us, I think, throughout the ages. But Wesley addressed Calvinism all the time. He called it predestinarianism or predestinationism or some of these other terms. But in his, I mean, he has message after message. These are all in his volume, Addresses, Essays, and Letters, which I know Bob has a copy of in his office. I'm pretty sure Clay has a copy of in his office. All of you have access to it if you have the Internet. It's all public domain, but you can look up these sermons, these essays by Wesley, where he discusses, where he wrestles with this, where he, he works through. And, and John Wesley was an incredible expositor of Scripture. People downplay his theology because he was an evangelist, and that's true. He didn't have time to sit around in an office and study and write these big theology books like Calvin and others. But the man churned out insights and, and could do theology with the best of them. And the thing that I like about Wesley is he's one of my spiritual heroes for the reason that he also did all of that while traveling 250,000 miles on horseback throughout his life from his 20s until his 80s, preaching three to six sermons a day outside with no amplification. Um, <clears throat> so it's pretty amazing, but he, he, he dealt with this. And so there are resources at the Wesley Foundation that you should probably, he would be the first place to go in terms of following up and saying, oh, what do I really believe and, and where can we go from here? If you've ever learned anything about Calvinism or Reformed theology, the acronym that Calvinists use to describe or to, to distill the essence of what Calvinism consists of is TULIP. Tulip was uh, formed after some the, the, the couple of synods and, and, and gatherings and after Calvinism's theology was developed over a while. This became a shorthand way to describe what's called the five points of Calvinism. So if you have friends that are Presbyterian, if you have friends that are uh, Reformed Baptist, if you have friends that grew up Lutheran or others, they will probably know this. They probably learned this in Sunday school growing up. They call, they're called the doctrines of grace sometimes. Um, you can't read anything by John Piper and not get this, or R.C. Sproul, um, uh, Ligon Duncan, or any of these other popular writers and teachers, John MacArthur, others that are always teaching this stuff. Well, I wanted to walk you through what it means. Some of you may know this, some of you may not, but TULIP as an acronym used by Calvinists stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Now, all of these doctrines hinge, uh, are, are, are united together. It's like, think of a spider web. It, it, they're, 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 the webs goes out in different directions, but they're all connected uh, tangentially and also in the center. So if you take one away, the others may come, become a little loose. If you take two away, then the whole thing collapses. So it's kind of like that. The doctrines of grace are intertwined, and they sort of flow from one another based on approaching Scripture with a few key assumptions. <clears throat> the reason, the appeal that Calvinism has to people, especially evangelicals, is one is that it provides a sense of doctrinal correctness. 
and certainty. There's a logic to Calvinism that's pretty airtight given some of the starting assumptions. It, it makes sense. You can, you can say it, you can teach it, you can share it, and if you buy into it, if you believe it, if you accept it, then it's really easy to explain, actually. <clears throat> We're going to go through these, and I'll, I'll walk through each one so you can see. Total depravity. I'm giving you quotes from the Westminster Confession of Faith, but there's also the Synods of Dort, and there's um, the Heidelberg Catechism, and there's other Reformed uh, <clears throat> doctrinal statements. Westminster is one of the most widespread. Total depravity. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able, by his own strength, to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. <clears throat> what this is saying in a couple hundred year old English is total depravity means that because of sin, because of the fall, our totality of being is depraved. That doesn't mean as we're as bad as we could be. That's a misinterpretation of total depravity. It means there's every part of us was affected by the fall, including our will. So as a result of the fall, humans, unregenerate man or woman, can't even or won't even choose the good if presented with it. There has to be a work in the heart called regeneration where the heart is transformed and the will is turned to accept the offer of grace. Humanity on your own, on our own, cannot respond to God's offer of grace because we're inherently depraved. We're inherently selfish and our wills are inherently in bondage. I believe Jonathan Edwards, or maybe it was Luther, one of them wrote a famous treatise, Bondage of the Will. <clears throat> I think it was Jonathan Edwards. So that's the T in total depravity. And they'll, they'll pull from passages um, like, I'll get this in a second, but they'll pull from passages like Ephesians, you know, while you were still dead in your trespasses and sins, you know, dead people are dead, they can't raise themselves, something has to come and make them alive before they can respond. Uh, this, this view teaches that there are the people that are saved from this state of, of, of hopelessness, and there are people that are passed over for salvation. And the people that are passed over are the ones who God allows to remain in their sinfulness, willingly sinful, reveling in their sin, reveling in their natural ability, whatever. God allows them to remain, <clears throat> and those are called the reprobate. So you'll hear that term sometimes, the reprobate. And those are the people who God has turned over to sin, has allowed them to remain in their sin, has not chosen to redeem them. The ones who he's chosen to redeem are the elect. <clears throat> and um, so this is from Theopedia. You can check out some of the articles in there. But it says the biblical doctrine of reprobation teaches that the sinful man is condemned apart from God's saving grace. And scripture uses the phrase gave over to describe God's allowance of reprobation. In Romans chapter 1, verse 24 and 26, God allows, but he's not the primary cause of sin. God gives humanity over to our fallen sinfulness. <clears throat> and as a result of that, we are completely and utterly unable 
to do anything that would remotely merit salvation or even recognize an offer of salvation because we're willingly given over to our sin by God. Give me like 20 minutes and we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, good question. Remember, all these doctrines are interrelated. So I'm going to touch on them and, and yeah, that will come out in a minute. <clears throat> Again, if, uh, total depravity. They'll point to passages, a favorite passage is Ephesians. Uh, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy, he made us us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. So you'll hear dead people can't breathe, dead people can't respond, dead people can't walk, dead people can't choose Dead, dead, dead. Jesus made us alive. There have been many a Calvinist sermon preached on Ephesians chapter 2. The U, unconditional election. Westminster says, By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. These angels and men, thus predestinated and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. God, from all eternity, has ordained that he would redeem and save some of creation. And he would allow the ones who are not redeemed and saved, the reprobate, to be destroyed or to be damned, and it would all be for his glory, to show his justice and to show his hatred of sin while at the same time his overflowing mercy. So all of it has been foreordained by God because God decreed it from the beginning. Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and so it's set. So you are either part of the elect or you're reprobate. And there is not a thing you can do to change that. And if you respond to God's offer of salvation and grace, it's because you were ordained and chosen to do so. So unconditional election means it's not conditioned on anything about you. Nothing about me was a condition for God choosing me. It was entirely of his own uh, inner design his own will that's inscrutable, unsearchable, unknowable, but it's nothing about me. All right, so unconditional election. They'll point to Ephesians 2.5. It's by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, and this means all of this, is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
So your salvation, you contributed nothing to it. Because if you contributed something to it, that means that you could then turn and look at somebody who chose to not obey, and you could say, I did the right thing and chose to obey. You didn't. Therefore, you should have been like me, and there's your ability to boast. And what Reformed theology, Calvinism teaches is the Bible does not allow for any boasting. You contribute nothing to your salvation. It is all, all of this is from God to show his mercy, unconditional election. First Peter says, it's, for in scripture it says, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. He's quoting Isaiah. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and rock that makes them fall. Again, quoting Isaiah. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, if you're a Charlie Hall fan, or wonderful light, if you're reading the NIV. So, crystal clear. God destined some to not believe. Why do people reject the gospel? Because they were destined to. Why did you accept the gospel? Because God chose you. Nothing of you, everything of God. John Calvin said, God is said to have ordained from eternity those whom he wills to embrace in love and those upon whom he wills to vent his wrath. Jonathan Edwards, God does decisively in his providence order all of the volitions, and that's the will, of moral agents, either by positive influence or by permission. And it being allowed on all hands that what God does in the affair of man's virtuous volitions, whether it be more or less, is by some positive influence and not by mere permission, as in the affair of a sinful volition. What Jonathan Edwards is saying is God does everything in everyone. The volition, the will, God ordains it and permits it and allows it to be what God created it to be, either elect or reprobate. And nothing in and of of what we do can take away from or add to that. It is all God. Sometimes this is called determinism. God wills everything, including our volition, what we choose, what we decide. If I want to drink Coke today, not Pepsi, it's because from all eternity, God has decreed and ordained that I will drink Coke today and not Pepsi. All right? Absolutely. <laughs> so, that's unconditional election. Limited atonement. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect, and Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified until the Holy Spirit does in due time actually apply Christ unto them. Other expressions of limited atonement spell this out in more detail, and they'll say what this means is Jesus' death, his atoning blood, was shed for the elect. Not for the reprobate. None of Jesus' blood was wasted. Not one drop. Nothing that Jesus set out to do gets overturned or gets denied. He was victorious and successful. 
What does that mean then if there are all these people that turn away from him? It means that they were never destined to accept him anyway and his atoning blood does not cover and was not intended to cover their sins. Limited atonement. This is the one point of Calvinism that even a lot of Calvinists have trouble with. And some will even reject it. You'll hear people say that they're four-point Calvinists. This is the point that they reject. But... If it follows, if God decreed who's going to be saved, who's going to be damned, he made the provisions, he elected who would be saved and passed over those who would be damned, which is called double predestination. It means he predestined some to heaven, he automatically destines the rest to hell. It's both, and Calvinists have to bite the bullet and say, yeah, God did. He created the person who died without their faith in Jesus. God created them from all eternity specifically to send them to hell as just punishment for their sins to magnify his glory in creation. And consistent Calvinists bite the bullet and say, yeah, that's what he did. So because of that, then, God's atonement was only intended always for those whom he would redeem. And the blood of Jesus does not cover the sins of the non-elect and was not intended to cover the sins of the non-elect. The atonement was limited. Which brings us to irresistible grace. If God does all that, God's going to accomplish it. All those whom God hath predestined unto life, and those only he is pleased in his appointed time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which, excuse me, in which they are by nature to grace and salvation. So out of the sinful nature, called to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and saving, savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, pulling from Ezekiel, renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectually, and effectually means actually, drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. Irresistible grace means that God makes you an offer you can't refuse. If God chooses to call you, that means that God is the one who regenerates you. That means that your will that was incapable of responding to God before is now turned and regenerated and drawn to God, and you come to God. There's no offer that is given that's not accepted by the elect. If you are drawn to God, it's because God predestined to save you, to reach in, to pull you out of that damned humanity, the doomed humanity, the humanity on its way to hell that's reveling in its sin. God pulled you out because for all eternity he had determined, I'm going to save that one. So it's irresistible. If God plans it, decreed it, foreordained it, you can't not do it. Brings us to the, the scripture wise, they'll Calvinists point to John 6, 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. And Calvinists will say that verb draw, literally, uh, heklua, uh, I think it's uh, helko, helkuo, literally means to drag. When Jesus tells Peter to pull up a fish and the coin will be in his mouth, the verb he uses is to drag, to draw up the fish. To drag away or to draw away or to compel. So they'll say, Jesus is saying, no one come to me, the Father who sends him draws them to me. So the grace of God is irresistible. He will draw you. How does that then leave us free? If God is doing it, how are we free? Well, 
This is where Calvinism uh, has a doctrine called compatibilism. Compatibilistic free will means that you are free to do the thing that you desire to do the most. As long as you're doing what you want to do the most, you are free. So while you're a sinner, you are free in that you are doing what you want to do, which is sinning. And you, you can't turn to God because your will is, is, is you know, total depravity, your will is in bondage. But you're still free because you're doing what you want. When God regenerates you and he draws you to himself, he changes your will. He moves your will. He regenerates your spirit. And now you want to respond to his grace. And so you come to him because you're doing what you want and not against your will. Then you're acting freely. That's called compatibilism. That's how God's divine sovereignty is compatible with human free will. So compatibilism claims that every person chooses according to his or her greatest desire. In other words, people will always choose what they want. And what they want is determined by and consistent with their moral nature. Man freely makes choices, but those choices are determined by the condition of his heart and mind. Libertarian free will, on the contrast, maintains that for any choice made, one could always equally have chosen otherwise, or even not chosen at all. So two views of will and freedom are involved whenever Calvinism is being discussed. There's the Calvinist version of free will, which is compatibilism. Well, yeah, you're free to do what you want. And what you want to do is sin, so you sin. And then God regenerates your heart, and you want to come to him in grace, so you come to him in grace. So you're doing what you want to do, therefore you're free. God's not violating your will. Libertarian free will, non-Calvinist free will says, no, free will means you could have done either. Or neither. You genuinely made a choice that you and only you are entirely responsible for. And that had an effect in your salvation. <clears throat> so that doctrine of free will comes into play. And Calvinists, even as they use it, you can read J.I. Packer has written uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And he talks about how can we preach the gospel and tell people to choose if, if we believe that God's grace is irresistible and they'll come no matter what. So he does a whole book about how to balance those two. It's a very good book. Not sure he's successful in it, but J.I. Packer's amazing. And if you want to read a sharp, solid Calvinist thinker, he would be the first one I'd send you to. <clears throat> but just know that the term itself, freedom of will, is different brings us to perseverance of the saints. If God chooses, God elects, God calls, God atones, God gives the offer, people come, that means that they will not leave, turn away, or fail to be saved. God's plans cannot be thwarted. If he ordains and destines to save, you are, will be, and forever will be saved. So, Perseverance of the saints, they whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Now there's a form of this that's popular in, in some partial Calvinist circles, especially among, there's, there, there are a lot of, in the Baptist church, it's Southern Baptists, it's interesting, because you have free will Baptists, and then you have Southern Baptists who are strong Calvinists. And then you have the majority of Baptists who are kind of, well, they make a good point, but they make a good point, and so that's where you get the three and the four-point Calvinists from. If you have Baptist friends, they're like that. And one of the things that there's a Baptist version of Perseverance of the Saints, and it's called Once Saved, Always Saved. 
And so the idea is that you freely come to Jesus. So the limited atonement, irresistible grace, all that's not true. But once you come, nothing you do ever can take that away. And you are always saved. You say the sinner's prayer when you're eight years old. You give your life to the Lord. You go headlong into rebellious living for the rest of your life. You die. You go to heaven. Because salvation, as Charles Stanley said, is like a tattoo. Once you get it, even if you walk out of the tattoo parlor and immediately regret it and hate it, it's permanent. That's a view of salvation. Now, that is not perseverance of the saints. That is not what Calvinism teaches. What Calvinism teaches is if you are the elect, you will persevere in your faith and you will make it to eternity. If at some point you don't, if at some point you turn away, if you deny Christ, if you reject the Lord, if you apostatize, that means you never were part of the elect. Your faith was never real. You were the, the, the type of soil that was rocky and the weeds, cho- or the weeds choked it out or the rocky soil or whatever. <clears throat> Your faith was never real. So that's the difference between perseverance of the saints and once saved, always saved. It's subtle, but it's diff- it, there's a difference to it. non-Calvinist systems would would say, as we'll see in a minute, well, there's a lot of warnings in the Bible not to do something that would be pretty wasted if it weren't even a possibility. Um, So, but perseverance of the saints, the the go-to passage, you know, he who began a good work in you will carry it on until the completion of the day of Jesus Christ. If you are saved, if you gave your life to the Lord, Jesus began a work in your spirit, and no matter what, he will guarantee that it comes to be, that it is brought to completion. The day of Jesus Christ. Now, Calvinists aren't the only ones that have a tulip. There's a tulip of non-Calvinism, and I know because I made it up last night. Um, <clears throat> I, I was trying to, I mean, there are other, there's people who have done roses and daisies and other, to try to put the views of, but <clears throat> I wanted to stick with the tulip thing and say, okay, there are non-Calvinist ways to look at these same passages and these same doctrines. And, and what they are is total captivity, union with the elect Messiah, longing God, integrity of the offer, and present assurance. Now, <clears throat> what these mean, total captivity. Rather than saying humanity is born into a state of fallenness that means that you can't even choose to do good if you wanted to because your will is entirely affected by sin, <clears throat> What you see in Scripture can also allow, and I I would say it does teach, that we are born into a state of captivity to sin as a master who has not just enslaved us, but has enslaved humanity and has enslaved creation. But he did it through humanity giving their authority to him when they rebelled in the garden. The authority that humanity was supposed to have, they gave over to Satan through their Eve's eating of the fruit and Adam standing right there with her and not judging the serpent but actually partaking. And because of that, humanity gave up their place. And sin and Satan and death became the rulers and the norm. And that's why God said in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. That was the consequence, is giving over that authority, that God-given authority has now been given over. So when Jesus comes, he identifies Satan as the prince of this world, the ruler of this age. Um, you see Satan has, has some ability in the Bible to accuse, to come before God. He has some authority. He tempts Jesus in the wilderness by offering him all the nations of the world to bow down to him. How is that a temptation if he couldn't actually do that? 
if he couldn't actually make the world powers, the principalities, all of the things that he controlled, if he couldn't bend those towards serving a nationalistic, militaristic Israel's Messiah, how would that be a temptation? So Satan has this authority, has this power, but what we see in the gospel is God proclaiming that through the arrival of the Messiah, that power has been defeated on the cross, and as part of that, it means that we have been brought out of slavery through the atoning blood, just like the, the Israelites were brought out of Egypt through the blood of the Passover lamb covering their doorposts. And so we are no longer captives to sin. Romans chapter 6 is all about this concept. <clears throat> this is just verses 20 and 23, but the whole chapter spells this out. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness. The result is eternal life, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul will then go on in Romans 7 to contrast what life looked like and felt like as someone who was still living in Adam, in the flesh, non-converted. And that's the chapter that I do what I don't want to do, the things I don't want to do, I do, who will rescue me, what a wretched man I am. That is the picture of humanity before the fall. So you read Romans 6, you read Romans 7, you get a picture that <clears throat> the, the rescue of God was a bringing us out of captivity to a master that we were willfully serving. And that we, though we're fallen, we are still able to choose the good when confronted with it. That if, if we are shown, if God comes down, if God lifts us up out of the muck and the mire and our desires and shows us his beauty and then shows us the muck that we're in, he gives us a choice whether we want to go back to what's comfortable and good and fun or whether we want to go to what's even more beautiful and more better. And many people will choose to go back. The road is wide that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to salvation. So <clears throat> there's a genuineness in here. So... Rather than saying it's total depravity, we're all born, and God has to make us, turn us, you know, has to regenerate us before we can even choose the good, it's rather, no, we're dead in our sins because the world is under the domain of death. And Paul is not saying by saying you're dead in your sins and your trespasses that you are incapable of any response. Because later he'll talk about Christians and say you're dead to sin. Well, I don't know any Calvinist that says, well, that means that we are unable to sin anymore. No Calvinist would say that. So, then that means when Paul's saying you were dead in your sins, he's not, why, we don't press that as literally if we're not going to press it literally elsewhere. Rather, what Paul's saying is, you could paraphrase, you're as good as dead in your sin. Your fate is determined while you're in sin. The road that le the wages of sin is death, and that's where you're headed on payday while you are in that state. However, if you receive the gospel, if you turn to the gospel, if you accept Jesus in faith, then God pulls you out of that and brings you through the waters of baptism, like the Red Sea, into the promised land as his people, Israel. So that's the paradigm that we're working with. So total depravity, does the Bible allow for that doctrine? Yeah, you could make some good arguments for it. Does the Bible demand that you believe that doctrine? Absolutely not, and not even close. Is it more probable that that's the correct doctrine? I don't think it is. 
I'm not a Calvinist, and that's part of the reason why. I have good Calvinist friends and colleagues who would disagree with me. They believe it is. I believe it's not. Scripture will allow for either, but I think it teaches against that concept of what the fall did to us. Revelation 1.5 talks about when it's introducing Jesus, grace to you, and he's opening the letter, and then he says, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be the glory and power forever and ever, amen. This is language from Exodus that was ascribed to Israel, the people, as they were brought out of captivity to Egypt, under the rulership of Yahweh at Mount Sinai, through the blood of the Passover lamb. And so the Revelation author takes this, and he says, that's what we are. But it's the new covenant. So Jesus, because of his death, because of his shedding of his own blood, chapter 5 spells it out in Revelation, worthy are you to receive all praise, honor, glory, power, etc., because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe, language, uh, tongue, tribe, language, people, and nation and made them to be priests. So through his death, he has been exalted, and he now is king, ruler over all the kings of the earth. He did not need to take Satan's offer in order to experience that. He had to wait, do it God's way, and God exalted him to the highest of heavens because he humbled himself to the lowest depths, Philippians 2. So this is the view of what, a view of what Jesus has done, a way to think about salvation. The old term for this was called Christus Victor, victorious Messiah. And it was the oldest and most widespread view of what the atonement means. It's older than penal substitution. It's older than the ransom theory. Any of these type of what the atonement actually means. The oldest one and the one that was proclaimed the loudest and the most widespread was this idea of Christus Victor. Jesus has won the victory over Satan and beat Satan with his own weapon, which was the death of the Messiah. That turned out to be uh, the way that Satan was defeated. Beat with his own weapon. So then, this is a quote by Austin Fisher. He says, the question is, well, why didn't the Bible flat out teach free will? You know, it seems they'll talk about predestination. Where's the verse that says we have genuine libertarian free will? And Fisher makes a good observation. He says, looking for free will in the Bible is like looking for gravity. It's assumed everywhere and holds everything together. So you probably won't notice it until it's missing and you float away. This is why it's usually easier to rattle off multiple verses that seem to contradict free will than it is to name a single verse that affirms it. We think of God hardening Pharaoh's heart because the passage sticks out. It cuts against the grain of the rest of the biblical narrative. I think he's absolutely right. Every exhortation in scripture, every demand that God makes, every request that God makes, every uh, uh, teaching hortatory uh, passage that God gives that's telling us to do something innately assumes that we will respond to it, can respond to it, and should respond to it. God doesn't need to tell people, oh, hey, you, you know that thing, your will, the thing that, that you use to choose between things? That exists. God doesn't need to spell that out because that's something that humans innately realize. Nobody has to be taught that, that they have the ability to make choices. I have the ability to pick up my phone or not pick up my phone. I just chose to pick it up. I can choose to not pick it up. I know that I have this ability. However, Calvinism and its intricate system of theological construction comes along and says, no, actually, you couldn't have done otherwise because God foreordained from all creation that you would pick up your phone just then and that you would not pick up your phone just then. 
And, and, and it, has to be, it has to be that way. Because if one microbe, if one atom in the universe is outside of the direct sovereign control of God, then, then he's not sovereign, is how Calvinists will present the dilemma. The Bible presents a different view of God's sovereignty, I believe. The you, union with the elect Messiah. When we start talking about, and you hear people talk about election, predestination, the chosen, one thing we have to realize, that's not New Testament language. Those are Old Testament terms. Election comes from the Old Testament. Paul didn't invent it. Peter didn't invent it. Jesus didn't invent it. Election is the way the Old Testament talked about Israel. Israel was the elect. Israel was the chosen. Israel was everything that the New Testament authors apply to Christians now was first applied by God to Israel. And in particular in Isaiah, that election, that calling, that, that choosing before the foundation of the world that God speaks over as Israel, there's some passages in Isaiah that that is applied to this mysterious figure called the servant. The servant is talked about as God's elect, as God's chosen. So in the Old Testament, the elect is the people of Israel as a whole, as a corporate entity. Israel is the elect here. Let me show you. Uh, modern translations don't always do it. Let me go back to King James so you can see. <clears throat> the word comes from here. Isaiah 42, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. This is of the servant. This is of the coming Messiah. He is the elect. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect. I have even called thee by name. I have summoned thee, though thou hast not known me. Israel, even in their rebellion, is called God's elect. Isaiah 65, and I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains. Mine elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. Israel, the elect. They are who were chosen and they who, who God destined. <clears throat> Isaiah 44, but now listen, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says, he who made you, who formed you in the womb and will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, Jerushan, which means righteous, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in the meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. One will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and will take the name Israel. A radical Old Testament passage where even Gentiles, even non-Israel, are being welcomed and called into this identity of the elect and are taking the name Israel upon themselves. The elect, I. Howard Marshall, New Testament scholar, he says, examination of the usage in the Old Testament and in Judaism, outside of Christianity, shows that the phrase, the elect, is used of those who have become members of God's people and never of individuals before they have become members of God's people. You'll never read in Scripture the elect referring to anything other than people who have entered into relationship with God as a whole. Election, C.K. Barrett, New Testament scholar, 
says election does not take place arbitrarily or fortuitously. It takes place always and only in Christ. They are elect who are in him, and they are elect in him. It's a failure to remember that this that causes confusion over Paul's doctrine of election and predestination. Peter says it this way, You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. The elect is Jesus, because Jesus is Israel. And only insofar as we are in Jesus are we part of the elect. It was always a corporate thing. Even Romans 9, the famous Calvinist passage, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. You know, God made one lump of clay for this and one lump of clay for this. That entire section of Romans 9 is quoting Old Testament prophets who are speaking about the people of Israel as a whole and the people of Edom as a whole. And they're using the term Jacob and Esau as ciphers or shorthands for the Israelites and the Edomites. And they're discussing how God uses different peoples for different purposes in bringing about his plans in the world. And that's what Paul is doing in Romans 9. He's showing how God uses and calls and elects peoples in order to do things. There's no discussion of election in the Bible that's about an individual when it comes to salvation. There's God doing things like calling Cyrus before he was born to deliver Israel. But in terms of salvation, every time election is discussed, it's corporate. And it's always only in Jesus. In Jesus. So think about it this way. Everything, um, <clears throat> everything that we have as Christians, we only have because we are united with Jesus. He's the recipient of all God's promises. He's the benefactor of all God's grace. He is Israel. So we only have a birthright. We only have a standing with God as we're united with Jesus. In the Old Testament, Israel as a people were called and chosen. They were the elect. There was nothing that could alter that God was going to redeem the world through Israel, his people. Nothing could change that. They were the elect. Israel would inherit salvation individual Israelites could come and go. People like Achan could go through disobedience. People who rose up like Korah in the rebellion against Moses would be cut off from their people. Individuals could come and go from Israel based on their covenant obedience and their faith in God. Likewise, non-Israelites could come and go, could come into Israel. People like Ruth, people like Rahab, so the borders of Israel were, were transferable. You could choose to become part of Israel or you could choose to rebel against God. If you chose to rebel, you would be cut off. Cut off from what? The promises made to Israel. So the elect were going to receive the reward. The question for the individual Israelite was, are you going to be with them? 
And that was based on response to grace. So the you is not unconditional election, that God just for all time and purpose decreed that he's going to elect some and damn others, and that's just going to help. No, the offer is always there. There is a choice that God allows. And if you are in Jesus, you're in the elect. You are part of the group that God predestined from all time. You're on the boat, and it's going to reach the shore. The question is, can you choose to jump ship? We'll get to that in a second. So, Olson says in his book, being saved, some people say, wait a minute, if I can choose salvation, hold on there, if I can choose salvation, that means that I chose and I enabled my own salvation and I can boast because I did something. And the response, I like Olson and Fisher both, they respond to this, being saved is not a matter of doing work. It's only a matter of not resisting. When a person decides to allow God's grace to save, he or she repents and trusts only and completely in Christ. This is a passive act. It could be compared to a drowning person who decides to relax and let his rescuer save him from drowning. Fisher says even better. What sort of idiot receives a gift and then starts boasting about how he used the muscles in his vocal cords, tongue, and mouth to say, yes, I will accept this gift? <clears throat> you, you, if somebody writes me a check for $100,000 and I go deposit it in the bank, I, I can't even fathom how I could boast in any way, shape, or form for that. I did nothing to earn that gift. But I have to deposit it in the bank in order for that gift to be actualized. So I don't initiate the gift, but I do have to play a part in receiving it. There's nothing in Scripture against that, not even the passage of against boasting in Ephesians, any of that. The assumption that Calvinism brings to the table is that acceptance of salvation is a work. If you assume that agreeing with something is a work, then you got to go Calvinist if you want to be consistent. But if you question that assumption, wait, no, no, that's not a work. Receiving a gift is not a work, at least not in the biblical sense. If you, then you're free. Then, then, then the shackles of Calvinism fall off. And you, you're, oh, I don't have to believe. I, it's just an unnecessary doctrine now. It doesn't mean that it's heretical. It doesn't mean you're going to go to hell if you believe it, whatever. But it's just not necessary. There's nothing in the Bible that speaks against that. So, <clears throat> um, I'm going to buzz through these last ones. Did you? Was it super pressing? Yes, please do. Let me, let me get through these, and then I definitely want to do Q&A. Um, so, L, limited atonement? No. What I see in Scripture is a longing God, a God who gives his atonement, who stretches out his hands and makes the offer, and genuinely makes the offer to everyone, genuinely desires everyone say yes. He does not limit it just to the elect, to those he know will accept it because the blood of Jesus may be wasted otherwise. That's a concept that's totally foreign to Scripture itself as well. Jesus did things all the time that seemed on the surface view to be a failure. He called to people all the time to repent. People turned away. He called to people all the time, go sell all your possessions and come follow me. The man walks away. Does that mean Jesus is a failure? Where did that concept come from? Somewhere in, in, in Reformed thought. But it's not one that Scripture demands. Look at God as painted in Ezekiel 18. <clears throat> See if this sounds like a God who is of limiting atonement. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? But if a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked man does, will he live? 
None of the righteous things he's done will be remembered. Because of the unfaithfulness, he is guilty of sin. And because of the sins he has committed, he will die. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Here, O house of Israel, is my way unjust? Isn't it your ways that are unjust? If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin, he'll die for it. Because of the sin he has committed, he'll die. But if a wicked man turns away from the wickedness he's committed and does what is just and right, he will save his life. Because he considers all the offenses he has committed and turns away from them, he will surely live. He will not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, house of Israel, I will judge you, each one according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Chapter 33, Ezekiel goes on to say to them, again, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? God is longing for these wicked people to turn to him. There's no concept of a God who is reprobate, is decreed from all eternity that only some will and only some want. Those who will, it's because he wills it. And those who want, it's because he ordained them in that way. That concept is a completely foreign view to passages like this that express the longing heart of God for everyone. We see it in the New Testament. Paul writes to Timothy, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of truth. Now, the way that Calvinists respond to this verse, they say what that means is he wants all from all people. He wants all kinds of people. He wants some from every nation to come to him, but not every single individual. And they're right that all doesn't always mean all. I have an article on that on my website. All doesn't always mean all in the Bible. All the world came to Joseph to buy grain. That doesn't mean the Inuit were paddling canoes from Greenland to buy grain. So all doesn't always mean all. But in this case and in the context, it kind of seems like that's what God's saying, is he really does want all people to return. Now, now you can't base your doctrine on one passage. That's called proof texting. And I'm not putting these up here to proof text. I'm putting these up here so you can see how Scripture talks about these things. And then you can go back and study them in their context and see if it bears out. Peter says, the Lord is not show, slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. These two verses now together, okay, if one could be translated in isolation, could say God wants all kinds of people. Second Peter comes along, and it makes it harder to make that case. This really does seem to say, and when you pattern it with Ezekiel, God really does seem to be offering salvation to everyone who will turn. And the offer seems to be genuine. And that brings us to the next one, the I, the integrity of the offer. If God makes an offer and you can't not accept it, that's not a genuine offer. That's, that's a pantomime. That's a, that's a play. That's acting. Um, if, if God says, do this, knowing that there's no way that you can't not do that, then there's no genuineness in that command. There's no response. There's no such thing as love. And, and obviously my Calvinist friends would disagree. But 
I, I would press him on it. I'd challenge him. I'd say, no, 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 no. Love demands and requires the ability to not love in order to be genuine. Because if you can't not love someone, then you are not experiencing a relationship. There's a, a robotic, mechanistic response. When I teach on God and the problem of evil, and I came up with this analogy here during my Wesley days, when I was street preaching and you have to generate a crowd out at Tate. <clears throat> and so I came up with the Playboy analogy. And the Playboy analogy is, let's say that somebody in here, you know, you, you, you're married and you look at your wife. You say, honey, I love you. I'm never going to cheat on you. <clears throat> okay. Let's, and, you, and you do it. Well, that's pretty cool. Okay, let's say that you say that, you make that vow, but you make it while you're on a desert island, and you're the only two people. So if I turn and look at my wife, my invisible, non-existent wife, and I say, honey, I love you, and I'm never going to cheat on you, and we're the only two people on the island, that doesn't mean anything. Not to me, not to her. There's no ability for me to not do that. That's an empty promise. There's nothing real there. Flip it around. Let's say we're going on our honeymoon and our plane crashes and we're the only two survivors and we land in the Playboy Mansion. And for some reason, all of the bunnies and all of the party people are just super attracted to, and I don't use myself, I use somebody from the audience usually at this point as an example. I say they're all attracted to this guy, to that beard. Of course they're attracted to that. So, <clears throat> both beards. So, they're, they're attracted. <clears throat> you land, you're in the grotto, you're surrounded by all these, these just people that are fawning over you and trying to get to you and giving the evil eye to your wife, and you turn to her and you say, honey, I love you so much, I would not even think of cheating on you, and you don't, and you actually remain faithful while surrounded by temptation, then your love is of infinite more value. Your love is actually having an ability to be lived out. You can choose not to, and that makes it that much better. It makes the relationship genuine. The ability to love has to entail the ability to not love. Doesn't mean you have to not love in order to love. It means you have to have the ability to not love in order for your love to be genuine. And God in Scripture wanted a genuine love. He wanted a real love. And that involved God taking what to us would look like a risk. By creating people and creation who could choose to turn away from him. And unlike the stupid playboy analogy, God didn't even put people in the midst of temptation. He put them in the midst of abundance and put one thing of temptation in there. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just one. Everything else was amazing. So God didn't even stack the deck against them. He just, he, but there had to be that ability to disobey him in order for their obedience to mean anything. Both to him and to them. That's what we see in Scripture, the integrity of the offer. If God offers salvation, if God gives the gospel, if, if it's already determined and decreed that you're going to accept it or reject it, then every Calvinist preacher is preaching an offer that they don't genuinely mean. Now, what I mean by that, they do mean they want people to be saved because they don't know who the elect are. So they're genuinely hoping that all of the people in the audience are part of that elect decreed from all eternity and will respond to the irresistible grace that God offers through their preaching. And that's why guys like Piper and Packer and others are, stoutly, are staunchly devoted to missions and evangelism. So it's a, it's a myth that Calvinists don't do evangelism because God already declared. No, that's an Arminian caricature of Calvinism. True Calvinists are consistent in their desire for evangelism, but their desire is better than their theology, I would say. A theology 
has, that, that preaches salvation has to be a genuine offer. Romans, Paul quotes Isaiah uh, 65, and Isaiah in this passage, and Paul's applying it to his setting in Romans. Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. That's the image that I see of God. All day long, I've held out my hands to people who I know are disobedient, and I know they're obstinate. He's talking about Israel in the Old Testament. I know that they're not going to accept it, but I'm still holding out the offer so that no one can say on the day of judgment, well, I couldn't have accepted it because I was reprobate. You didn't decree it, so it's not my fault. The offer is genuine, and I think that irresistible grace undermines that but rather what we see is an integrity of the offer. What about John when he says, no one can come to me unless the Father drags him and draws him? Well, in John, six chapters later, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Same verb. Same verb, helkuo or helko. I don't know a Calvinist that says, yeah, draw means drag. And so Jesus is saying he's going to drag all people to himself. So when he's lifted up, everyone's going to get saved. Everyone's going to believe. Well, no. The reprobate aren't in their system of theology. So how can it mean drag in one sense, but just draw or woo or offer in the other sense? The word can mean drag, compel, or it can mean attract or call. It's, a, it's, not, a, it's not a grab you and pull you. It's a, my hands are open. I'm drawing you. I'm telling you. I'm doing everything. I want you to come. I'm motioning. I've got the airport lights. Back up the truck. You know, come on in. I'm doing all this thing. So there's a drawing. And nobody can choose to be saved on their own because Jesus had to initiate the offer. Israel couldn't have chosen to leave Egypt until God gave the plagues through Moses. Until God turned uh, nature on its head and allowed for Israel to come out. So yes, salvation does come from God entirely. But the reception, the receiving of that salvation, the actualization of that salvation comes from humanity genuinely accepting a real offer. It's not a sham. It's not a show. So last one, P, present assurance. I don't think the Bible teaches what we would call perseverance of the saints in the Calvinist sense. And I certainly don't think it teaches once saved, always saved. Um, What we see in Scripture is Colossians 1. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Back up 22. To present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. In Romans 8, he'll say there's no condemnation. For who? For those who are in Christ. But that is absolutely contingent on our involvement. Because look at the next word in 23, if. It's a conditional. If you continue in your faith. Established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven in which I, Paul, have become a servant. God will keep you free from accusation. You can be assured of your salvation in the present. If you continue in your faith, your salvation is assured. If you think I've lost my salvation, your salvation is not car keys. You don't just lose it. 
You know, some, a professor of mine said it great. He said, somebody said, can you lose your salvation? And he's not Calvinist. <clears throat> he said, no, you can't lose your salvation, but you can throw it away. It's not something you, whoops, I dropped my assurance. I dropped my salvation. I dropped my atonement. It's not like that. <clears throat> it's a relationship. And relationships can be walked away from. <clears throat> and we see this, and there's nowhere in Scripture that demands that Christians have to <clears throat> have this assurance of future salvation apart from their actions. It's always in contingency with their actions. It's always you're judged by your faith and your deeds together because you're judged according to who you are in the moment, who you are as you stand before God. The past doesn't exist anymore. The future doesn't exist at all yet. All you have is the present. So you can know, <clears throat> am I saved? Well, easy to answer. Are you in Jesus? If you're in Jesus, then you're saved. Are you not in Jesus? Are you living in sin right now? Are you kind of, well, like Jesus, but also like... you? Well, then Scripture does allow for you some doubt of your salvation. I don't think there's anything wrong with that personally. Some people are like, I don't want somebody to doubt their salvation. I do, if they're not really saved. I absolutely want somebody to doubt their salvation if they just were raised Christian and think that they're saved because they said prayer at a youth camp. Absolutely I want them to doubt that salvation. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. Now, do I want a Christian who's living their life and struggling and dealing with anxiety and depression and the tiniest little thing causes them to downward spiral into the depths of, I'm not even a Christian anymore. And I'm not even, that's a different thing. That's a pastoral issue. But theologically, you can say to that person, do you trust Jesus for your salvation? Have you put your faith in him? Have you believed the gospel right now? Not in the past, but right now, do you believe the gospel? Is Jesus your Lord? Did God raise him from the dead? And if they say yes, if that's the, then yes, you're in him. Are you in Jesus? The boat's going to reach the shore. Stay on the boat. Have you jumped ship yet? Have you definitively declared, I'm done with you, Jesus, I'm walking away? If that's the case, then yeah, there may be some reason to doubt your salvation. And you may need to turn back to God with fear and trembling. But unless you've done that, relax. You're on the boat, it's going to reach the shore. But you have to stay on the boat. So you can have present assurance. You can be eternally secure only when you're secure in eternity. Witherington says that. You, you can know that you're going to be saved in the future when you get there. Right now, you can know you're going to be saved if you continue in how you are right now. Because think about this. If Calvinism's true, <clears throat> perseverance of the saints is true, no one in here can have assurance of your salvation. None of you can be assured of your salvation if Calvinism's true. The reason is because in 10 years, if you walk away from the faith, and at lunch, Clay and I were talking about this, people I interned with, students we had in our groups who have definitively walked away from the faith, people that I knew, weddings that were done in this chapel, people who were interning and all of this stuff, and then after years, they actually they just left, and they said, I'm done with it. I reject, I, this is, that was just a phase in college, whatever. Um, that means that they were, if Calvinism is true, they were never Christians to begin with. All the people they prayed for at this altar, all the work they did on campus, all the relationships they had with the Lord and their devotionalism, all of it was a sham that they absolutely believed at the time. But in reality, if Calvin's true, they were never saved. So therefore, you, none of you can know if you're saved now. Because if 10 years from now you turn away, that means that right now you aren't saved. You just think you are. You're believing something, but it's not true. 
That's what Calvinism forces you to. And actually, Reformed theologians who are consistent, they'll, they'll say, yeah, we can't have assurance. We can hope that we're part of the elect. But I could be part of the reprobate. If 15 years from now I turn away from the Lord, it means that I'm reprobate. So that's what Calvinism forces you into, whereas non-Calvinist theologies can say, no, you can have assurance in every moment. Wesley was adamant, you can have assurance of your salvation. Are you in Christ? Are you filled with the Spirit right now? Are you giving your will to the Lord? So Paul <clears throat> seems to be wondering, First Thessalonians, for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. How could Paul's efforts be useless if the uh, elect will always be saved and the reprobate will always be damned? Why does Paul even worry about their spiritual fate? Nothing he can do will change the fixed number of the elect from the beginning of time. But yet you see in his letters, he does worry. He does think that this might be in vain. He tells Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to a faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. You can make a shipwreck of your faith and be handed over to Satan. And Paul expresses in the, in the Corinthians letters that the purpose in handing someone over to Satan is so that they will repent and return to Jesus. By seeing what Satan has to offer and seeing the community of the church and realizing I don't have that anymore because I left it. I need to return. That's the purpose of handing someone over to Satan. That's what you do to an apostate in the early church. But if that's not even possible to turn away, then this is a lot of wasted ink. At a time when ink was really expensive. So Philippians, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a work, and it doesn't say in you in Greek. It says, en humen, in or among y'all. It's a plural. It's a dative preposition with a Greek plural after it. It's not saying God who began a good work in your heart will make sure that that is finished and so nothing you do can ever mess that up. Whether that's true or not, this passage isn't saying it. This passage is saying God who began a good work among y'all Philippians, I'm convinced he's going to see it to completion. He did see it to completion because the church exploded and it magnified, it grew, it spread all over the world, and we're here today. And we'll be here until Jesus returns, those of us that are alive. So that proof text doesn't even work. Um, here's the thing to, to notice. We'll end it here. Jerry Walls, uh, a non-Calvinist theologian, he says this, Austin Fisher cites him. His book, he says, notice that both Calvinist and free will theologians ultimately arrive at a point where further explanations are impossible. Both reach the limit of finally inexplicable choice. The free will theologian cannot fully explain why some choose Christ while others do not. I can't explain why I follow Jesus and good people who I know that are Christians don't. I don't know what it is that's preventing them within them from choosing that. I don't know why they don't. And because I don't know, I can pray very Calvinist-sounding prayers. God, open their eyes of their heart. Soften their heart. Lead them to you. Draw them to you. I, all those prayers that I want, and I can live with the fact that I, at the end of the day, I can't explain why somebody accepts and somebody doesn't. 
Because I'm okay with that rather than saying, well, I can explain that. It's because God chose from the foundation of the world to create some people to send explicitly to hell and some people to bring to heaven. That's not an answer that makes sense to me. And scripture doesn't demand that I accept that answer, so I'm not accepting it. Because Calvinism and the desire to uplift God's glory actually removes God's love. Because what you have is a God who created billions of people and millions, even billions of them, he created them specifically to not be saved. He created them specifically for him to pass over in order to save the rest. So no parent who has a bunch of children who all have a disease and has a cure and gives the cure to five or six of the children and leaves 15 or 20 of them to die, that's not love, that's evil. Why? Shouldn't the people that he got the medicine, shouldn't they be grateful that he saved some of them? No, not if he can save all of them. So when people talk, when Calvinists, they say, well, we should be grateful that God saves anybody because all of us deserve wrath and death and the fact that God saves the elect displays his mercy. No, it doesn't. It displays his arbitrariness. And it displays the fact that he could have saved everyone. If it doesn't have anything to do with their response, then God could have saved everyone and chose not to save some. And that's the mystery that Calvinists have to live with. The Calvinists cannot tell us why or on what basis God chooses some for salvation and passes others by. That's the God that Calvinism leaves with us, whether we like it or not, whether good Calvinists try to get around that or not, or try to soften it. You know, John Piper speaks about it in different ways, but at the end of the day, that's what he's saying. <clears throat> that's the choice that Calvinists get to, that they say, well, it's, we just can't know that. It's the inscrutable will of God. Non-Calvinists say, when it comes to why, who freely accepts and who rejects, I don't know. That's something that only God knows but I'm not willing to say it's because God created my dead grandfather who didn't receive the gospel, which I'm just making this up, my grandfather was, but my family member, God created them specifically to be damned for his glory? How does that work? What kind of glory is that? What kind of love is that? Well, it's God's love. It's different than our love. Yeah, but how different? Because that's not even remotely like our love. I mean, there's not even a human analogy that we can... And if, and if God's love is so different from what we think of as love, why do you think God's sovereignty is what we think sovereignty should be? And why do you think God's trustworthiness is actually what we think of when we say something's trustworthy? If God's love is different than anything we experience, and he can create people specifically to damn them for all eternity then why, how can we trust any other attribute of his to be anything like what we think it should be? How can we trust his goodness to actually be good? So what Calvinism does is it leaves you with some hard choices. Now, some Christians, many Christians, are willing to make that choice because they, they are convinced, and, and Calvinism offers this system of theology that's logical and it's sound, and man, you can hear some people really present a compelling case for it. They can and they do, and you should read Calvinists and hear what they're saying. But you shouldn't do what the interns right after I did, did and only read Calvinists and think, well, this is theology. And what you're doing is folk religion, or man-made, human-centered thinking. Because that's just not true at all. <clears throat> Here are a couple of resources if you ever want to look into this. 
Austin Fisher's book, I've mentioned that Young Restless No Longer Reformed. Roger Olson has two books, Against Calvinism and Arminian Theology, Myths and Reality. He presents a case uh, that really solid, and his blog is good as well. If you are a blog reader, read Roger Olson's blog sometime. <clears throat> ben Wetherington at Asbury has the problem with evangelical theology, examining the foundations of Calvinism, dispensationalism, and Wesleyanism. He actually questions some things about Wesleyanism, which is cool to see a Methodist do. <clears throat> Excellent chapter on Calvinism. And then his theology, his, his commentary on Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, associate commentary. This is the best lay-level Romans commentary in English. This is, anybody in here could read it. You don't have to know Greek. You don't have to be a, a Bible geek. Um, <clears throat> it's fantastic. And he looks at how these views of predestination and election and all of this stuff developed over the years as he goes through Romans. And then the last one, I don't have a copy with me, but a book by Greg, that Greg Boyd edited called Across the Spectrum. And I think the subtitle is like Examining Doctrines that Divide Christians or something like that. Across the Spectrum. What it does is it takes all of these doctrines, predestination, free will, baptism, um, you know, women in ministry, all of these issues where Christians differ. <clears throat> and it allows Christians from those views to express their view fairly and accurately. So you can get a sample from things across the spectrum. To me, that's the best way to learn theology. Learn it in discussion. Learn it in dialogue with people who believe it rather than just reading caricatures of what other people say. So definitely don't take what I said today as, oh, well, that's Calvinism. I've tried to distill as best I can from a non-Calvinist a fair and accurate depiction of Calvinism, but I know I failed. I know that if a Calvinist were sitting here, they'd go, yeah, but you left out this, you downplayed this, you didn't. Fine, go read their stuff. Go explore, go learn, grow, because that's what you're in right now. You're in the season of growing and having your faith refined and tested. And the last thing you need to do is say, well, we haven't figured it out yet, so it doesn't matter. It absolutely matters. Can you pray to a God who is determined from all eternity that the person that you love more than anyone who's not a Christian will never be a Christian no matter what they do because he created them specifically to send them to hell where they'll suffer consciously for all eternity? Can you serve a God like that? If you can, so be it. More power to you. I know plenty of people that can, but I can't. So know what you believe. Chew on it. Marinate. Grow. And... Um, we're out of time. So thanks. Actually, I think they said they start doing something in here at 4.30. Or so, I don't know. Anyway, I can stick around for a few more minutes if you guys want to do Q&A or talk. But I know you've sat here for a good hour and a half. And so feel free to take off, I guess. I don't know. Whoever's in charge here can tell you what to do. I'm just coming in to speak. Thanks for having me down uh, yesterday and today. I would, guys, <clears throat> I, I would love to come back anytime you want if it's ever small group training, leadership training, teaching, speaking, if you ever want somebody to go down to Tate Center with you and preach, anything like that, I would be happy to do that. I'm only three hours away. Um, I really do want the ministry of Disciple Dojo to be available to the interns and the leadership of Wesley. So please connect with me. If you're on Facebook, I'm the only James Michael Smith that I know of with a hyphen in between the name in Charlotte. If you're on Instagram, James Michael, number seven. Uh, Twitter, same thing. But uh, Facebook is where I post a lot of articles. My Disciple Dojo Facebook page, join that, like it. 80%, 90% of what I do is social media. Um, so if you're on any of those, connect with me, and I'll, I'll reciprocate. Thanks for everything. Have a great Thursday.